You are listening to Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, with your host, Randy Sutton. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, here on AmericaOutloud.com. I'm your host, Randy Sutton. In case you don't know, I'm a 34-year police veteran, the author of A Cop's Life, and the founder of The Wounded Blue, the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Officers. So, we got a lot to talk about today. We got a great guest in the interview room. So let's take a walk into the briefing room, where I'm going to give you my view from the blue. I'm going to start off the briefing room with something positive. I know that's going to shock you because there's really not a whole lot positive in law enforcement these days. Um, Mark Cuban, the uh, guy on Shark Tank and owner of some sports team or another, um, gave $50,000 each to the deputies, the two Los Angeles County deputies who were ambushed and severely injured in the, um, in the attempted assassination in Compton a couple weeks ago. I think that that's pretty cool. Um, he created a fund that was actually just for uh, wounded military people. And uh, he decided that he was going to branch out and give $50,000 each to those officers. Of course, those deputies are, you know, severely injured. Um, we're just praying that they're going to be able to, you know, re- retain normal life and their jobs. But it's still too soon to tell. But a really nice gesture on Mark Cuban's part. I'm giving him a thumbs up. You can't see it because it's a radio show. But that's what I'm doing. So um, let's talk about some of the usual nonsense that we talk about the insanity that's facing law enforcement. One of my favorite people to talk about is one of my least favorite people. And I'm talking about the United, or I'm sorry, the the state's attorney in St. Louis, Kim uh, Gardner. Kim Gardner is without a shadow of a doubt one of the worst prosecutors in the country. She was put into office on an anti-law enforcement platform. She has been a disgusting nightmare for the people of St. Louis. She basically turned the office um, into a, a, a land of ineptitude. Well, first of all, when she got elected, they lost so many... Um, district attorneys or prosecutors that were in the office. So she took she took office about three years ago. And um, 65 prosecutors, 65 prosecutors left because of her. A turnover rate of more than 100%. Listen, you know, some of the attorneys quit, some were fired, but they took with them, you know, an incredible amount of experience, but they just couldn't stand working for her because she is an agenda-driven, um, doesn't care at all about about the criminal element and holding them accountable to it. No, her entire her entire existence revolves around trying to subvert 
the criminal justice system by attacking law enforcement officers. She's put untold numbers of cops on what's called the Brady List, which which uh, questions their credibility and makes them ineligible to testify. She just arbitrarily makes a determination uh, for no reason other than she wants to. But she's been facing a lot of um, blowback from law enforcement. I mean, they're not taking it sitting down. So now she so she sued a whole bunch of people claiming that there was a, a racist conspiracy against her. So what she said was just, I mean, crazy. She's, she's, she's out of her mind. Um, so what she said is that, uh, and of course, she didn't pay for this lawsuit. Mothers Against Police Brutality has been picking up the tab for, for her. Okay, so um, according to her attorney, uh, this is after the judge made a ruling throwing out the case uh, that, she, that she's brought. Um, he said that she has been viciously attacked by the coordinated powerful few simply because she is a black woman reforming the criminal justice system so that all people in the city of St. Louis are treated fairly. Yeah, okay. Well, the judge tossed out her lawsuit, said it can best be described, this is, I love this quote, can best be described as a conglomeration of unrelated claims and conclusory conclusionary statements supported by very few facts which do not plead any recognizable cause of action. He goes on to say, Gardner presents no specific material facts, circumstantial or otherwise, to show that defendants acted with each other for the purpose of depriving her or anyone else of a constitutional right to equal protection. Uh, so, her complaint is nothing more than a compilation of personal slights, none of which rise to a legal cause of action. So, basically, all that money, all those accusations that she was leveling at the at the police union and, and other people uh, were, of course, nonsense. Now, here's what's interesting. She was notoriously anti-police, notoriously. And um, Gardner hired an investigator because she sued, she made accusations that the, that the governor at the time uh, that, she, uh, that she took office, uh, Governor Eric Greetens in 2018, Gardner hired an investigator named William Tisby to verify occupations, accusations that the governor had taken semi-naked pictures of his lover and transmitted them electronically. That's, that's what she went after the governor for, for taking pictures and, and sending them to his girlfriend. That's, that's a biggie, right? She ended up dropping the charges against Greetings after questions were raised about her investigator's conduct during the investigation. So the police asked, asked a judge to appoint a special prosecutor to investigate perjury 
against her investigator. So, um, a, a the St. Louis attorney uh, took the case to a grand jury, and, and Tisby was indicted on seven counts of perjury and evidence tampering. This is Kim Gardner's investigator, the one that she used to bring charges against the governor. So you can tell that the chickens are coming home to roost for Kim Gardner. And uh, I hope that that, that that investigation, there's no doubt that it leads back to her. And maybe, uh, who knows, maybe she'll see a prosecution. Wouldn't that be sweet? Oh, yeah. So I want to talk about Breonna Taylor case just for a moment. Now, of course, we've been beat over the head with the Breonna Taylor case since since it happened. Um, you know, Breonna Taylor was shot and killed by Louisville police detectives um, who were doing a search warrant at her house. And it was reported from the very beginning. There was so much misinformation, disinformation, and propaganda and lies sent out by the by the attorney for the family, of course, as usual, and, and other sources saying that she was she was uh, the wrong. She wasn't even the, the the person that was in the search warrant. That it was somebody else. That the police went to the wrong house. That they gunned her down and murdered her in her bed. And of course, what did it do? Incited violence, riots, the usual. And uh, well, now the investigation is complete. It was given to the grand jury, and the grand jury failed to find that the officers in regards to the death of Breonna Taylor, acted, um, they were justified. So now the facts are actually coming out, and that is that Breonna Taylor was uh, the girlfriend of a pretty significant drug dealer at one time. And although their personal relationship, romantic relationship apparently ended, their business relationship did not. And the Louisville narcotics detectives were up on a major investigation. They were uh, they they were surveilling Breonna Taylor. They were surveilling the suspect, the main suspect, the drug dealer. They saw them exchanging packages. They uh, he had, she had packages delivered to her house for him. Um, the uh, investigator suspected it was narcotics. They had her going to his place, him going to her place. And a recorded phone conversation from the suspect saying that she was handling all his money and had $8,000 of his cash. And uh, so the, they had a warrant for, for not only his place, but Breonna Taylor's place, since she was a target of the investigation. So when they went to serve the warrant, they knocked on the door. Now, even though they had a no-knock clause, which means they could have just beat down the door and gone in. They didn't. They announced themselves. They announced that they were police, that they had a search warrant. And Breonna Taylor's boyfriend, claiming that he didn't know they were cops, opened fire as they came in the door. And he shot through a door. So he shoots one of the officers. One of the officers gets hit in the leg. Um, and, and the two officers return fire which is what anybody would do when they're being fired upon, right? So she happened, Breonna Taylor was standing next to her boyfriend when they when they returned fire. So she is the one that got hit, and she died. Is it a terrible tragedy? Sure it is. 
But is it murder like the activists and the media and the politicians want to say? No, of course not. These officers were justified in returning fire. That's what happens when people shoot at you. And because they did not get the, um, the result that they wanted, and there's rioting and violence, and once again, it is, it is insane, the reaction to um, this shooting. And the detective who was involved in the shooting um, is now no longer safe in his own home, his family. There, there are threats, credible threats, and he cannot even, he can't even hope to go back to work. So he's trying to um, buy, find enough money to buy the remaining pension time so that he can retire and then flee because his family's safety is at risk. This is what we've become. This is what our nation has become, a third world country. That if they don't get the 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 um, uh, justice that they think they deserve, then uh, there's certain elements in our activist culture now that will take matters into their own hands. They want revenge. They don't want justice. And uh, this is a this is a terrible terrible mark on our society. Um, and unfortunately, it just seems like there's more to come. So there's plenty more I've got, but we've got our guest waiting for us in the interview room. So he's a fascinating guy. Uh, let's not wait a moment longer. Take a walk into the interview room, and uh, you're going to love this guy. I know we were a little disappointed because we've had to push back the Brothers in Blue Bash for a few months because of the COVID insanity. Now, on October 17th, we are still going to have a virtual Brothers in Blue bash, kind of like a tease, and we're going to uh, raise some money. We're going to have some tremendous auction items. So uh, uh, stay listening to uh, this and go to the Facebook page, Brothers in Blue Bash Las Vegas, and get the information there. Now, March 27th, that is a Saturday night here in Las Vegas. The Brothers in Blue Bash, which is going to be the largest celebration of law enforcement, unity, and pride to benefit the Wounded Blue. It's going to be right here in Las Vegas. Got some tremendous, tremendous entertainment lined up for you. There's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a, an event to remember. Fantastic hotel room uh, prices at the Orleans. Just go to the Brothers in Blue Bash. A Facebook page and you can uh, make your um, make your reservations there you can get a table you can get seats you can sponsor all kinds of things check it out Facebook page brothers in blue bash Las Vegas I don't know about you but if you love coffee you're going to love law dog coffee law dog coffee company yes indeedy this is amazing coffee it's been uh, in the family of uh, uh, brewers for 90 years, but this particular brand is, is uh, created just for us. So if you love coffee, you're going to love Law Dog Coffee, especially because not only is it phenomenal coffee, it's, it's uh, uh, roasted in a, in a family-owned roasting company. It's been around for 90 years, and it is delicious, but it also 
goes to help the uh, the company, Law Dog Coffee Company, gives a percentage of its income to thewoundedblue.org. In fact, they sponsor the Canine Companion Program for the Wounded Blue. So go to lawdogcoffee.com. It gets delivered directly to your house. It is phenomenal, and it tastes so good, it ought to be illegal. America's cities and claims of racism in the ranks of law enforcement have spirited a renewed debate on racial equality. It was Alexis de Tocqueville who reminded us Americans are so enamored of equality, they would rather be equal in slavery than unequal in freedom. To which I say, be warned of the shiny object, America. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Well, it's a fight for the soul of humanity. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. With me today in the interview room of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement is Jason Lehman. Jason is a sergeant with the Long Beach Police Department and has been since 2006. He spent the majority of his career working as a member of the West Division's directed enforcement team, um, working criminal street gangs. But he's also the creator of a, a program called WISM. And WISM is a fascinating program. Why do you stop me? Um, we're going to talk about, about Jason's career and about what he hopes to accomplish with this amazing, innovative program. Jason, thanks so much for being on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. Thanks for having me, Randy. Let's talk about you for a moment. Um, let's talk about what your, your, your law enforcement career. What drew you to law enforcement to begin with? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And I grew up in New York City. And in New York, I had gotten myself into some issues with the law as a young, um, a young man trying to figure kind of find my way. And uh, my mother picked me up and moved me across the country to this great state of California, where uh, I found the game of football. And football showed me what teamwork was all about. And it created a team um, setting for me to thrive in. And once I found out how um, how similar police work was to football, it just really drove me to become a police officer. So in 2006, I jumped into the police academy and um, became a police officer for the city of Long Beach. How old were you then? I was 25. 
Okay, so you were uh, you were uh, you weren't a kid. You were ready to make a make a career decision, and you did. T- tell me about um, your your position with the Long Beach Police Department. Your career. So uh, starting in 2006, I jumped into patrol, and I uh, man, I was a guns, drugs, and bad guys kind of guy. Um, I had a saying, and it was uh, it was an interesting saying back then. Now the saying doesn't quite make sense, but. It's the faster I can get out of jail, the faster I can come back. And um, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and so it was all about going out there and hooking and booking. And um, I jumped onto a gang and violent crime suppression team as a very young copper with less than two years on. And um, I, uh, I, things got a little bit different. Um, I became a, uh, a very no-nonsense police officer, and I'm embarrassed to say I, I, uh, I operated in what we would consider the gray area. I worked on a gang and violent crime suppression team for a number of years, encountered a number of very um, horrific, critical incidents, and uh, did that on and off for about seven years. I then became the community engagement officer where I worked um, almost directly under uh, Chief Robert Luna of the Long Beach Police Department, helping to build and grow upon community engagement programs, which works to improve police legitimacy. And then I went and took the sergeant's test. Uh, I was very fortunate to be able to promote to sergeant in 2019. And now I am the supervisor of uh, some of the best cops in America who work in central Long Beach, which is one of our most uh, at-risk high crime areas in the city. I want people to get a a flavor for what Long Beach, uh, I mean, I'm familiar with it, but, you know, there's so many different agencies in the country. How big is Long Beach PD and and kind of describe what, uh, um, you know, the, the area? Sure. So Long Beach PD is um, about 800 and change of sworn law enforcement officers with about three or 400 professional staff who work to try and help uh, the police officers on a day-to-day basis. The city is 50 square miles. It's uh, about 500,000 residents. And there can be up to 1.2 million people in the city at one time because we share a piece of the port and have a lot of business in our city. It's an amazing city. It has different pockets and communities. Uh, We have about 56 different neighborhoods in the city, and um, there's all different demographics. Um, There are people that are, you know, dealing with poverty and working through an impoverished state living in certain areas, and there's multimillionaires living in other areas. Long Beach, uh, I think, is a fairly safe city, um, but we do deal with uh, about 15 to 20,000 gang, documented gang members from about 50 different criminal street gangs. So you're, you're talking about a, a, a major city. This is not, this is not small town USA. <laughs> no. Yeah, Long Beach is the seventh largest city in the state of California and the 43rd largest city in the country. So we're, uh, you're not policing Mayberry. You're, uh, <laughs> you're, you're right, <laughs> excuse me, you're right in the mix. Um, and I can tell from your voice and, and from your enthusiasm that you love being a cop. I do. So, you know, you've, you've experienced, you've experienced a lot in your career. Um, you have, you've, uh, experience critical incidents, if you would, describe a life-changing incident that occurred during your career. Yeah, so I, I work on a gang and violent crime suppression team called Directed Enforcement, and I got onto the team in late 2007. In 2009, uh, the team's mission was to um, suppress 
gang crimes um, with a focus on violent crimes and uh, the sale of narcotics, which uh, if you're not familiar with it, leads to violent crimes and violent criminal activity takes place in order to protect uh, narcotic sales. So in 2009, I'm working undercover. Um, I'm sorry, I'm working uniformed on a team that has a dual purpose and we're working with our narcotics team at the time. And we have made a decision that we're going to uh, do something called a buy bust operation. And this buy bust operation brings police officers out into the area. We use a, a police assistant or a confidential informant to go out there and purchase drugs. And there was a guy that was selling drugs and he was going to make our second, second sale to our confidential informant. And we had devised a plan to take this person down. We had about eight people in plain clothes and about four to six officers in uniforms. And the plan was what we thought in uh, oftentimes was foolproof and that didn't work out. So the plan was to take this guy down inside of an apartment complex. We try and make that happen. And he ends up uh, running up a, up a uh, exterior balcony going down the balcony um, where the second story apartment doors are. And then without even touching the railing of the balcony, he jumps as, as police officers are chasing him from the second story, lands on his feet, punches my partner right past my partner's gun as my partner is ordering him to the ground and takes off running. I run after him. Um, I, I tackle him. A use of force ensues and I get up. And when I get up, I take a deep breath. And when I take that deep breath, I look down and unfortunately that person's not breathing. And um, it was a very, very serious incident for me. Now at that time I had been in dozens and dozens of uses of force. And in this one, I thought to myself, something could have been done different. And it was such a weird thought because that's always the, the question is what could I have done different or what could he have done different? If one of us would have done something different, the outcome would have been different. And so at that moment, my gun's taken away from me. I am made to feel like I'm a homicide suspect. Um, I am separated from my peers. I go and seek counseling. I get three days off. And a lot of the community will say that that's a paid vacation. Well, if you haven't been in, in the shoes of somebody that's been in, involved in a deadly force situation, it's, it's the last type of paid vacation you ever want to go on. And so uh, at that point, it was very, very stressful for me. And that led me down the path of trying to create what ultimately ended up being, why'd you stop me? You know, the, um, the current social views of uh, police use of force is that uh, there is, you know, systemic racism that is fueling murderous cops to kill um, unarmed black people and, uh, and to, you know, use their positions of authority to oppress and use, and use force against um, members of the black community. Um, you, you've been involved in uses of force. You're, you police an area that, uh, that has a, a great deal of minority um, uh, uh, members. Do you believe that there is uh, this, a systemic racism problem involving police in America? Well, I'll tell you, I've never been good at guessing at what other people do. 
And so I can't speak to a systemic problem of racism across the entire country involving 800,000 police officers, hundreds of millions of community members, and have me speak on this idea of systemic racism. But what I can tell you is that if we can utilize a system of cooperation, and if we can teach all people of all colors how to cooperate and empower them to understand that there is an internal and external affairs review process that does hold police officers accountable, I believe that that will change the perception of the level of systemic racism that seems to be occurring in this country and perceived by certain men and women of color, if that makes sense. No, that makes a great deal of sense. And, and, and you know, this is, this is an issue that is at the forefront of the American justice system. It's at the forefront of, uh, of the, the, every single um, news broadcast today. Uh, you know, we are in the midst, uh, we are in the throes of turbulence and of violence across America revolving around this particular subject. So talk about wisdom. Talk about why you created it and how you created it. Yeah, so Why'd You Stop Me is a nonprofit organization. It's, it's built as a nonprofit since 2014. But from, from 2011, the end of 2011 on, this message has begun to be delivered. Now, I'll tell you why. In 2009, I got into that use of force and unfortunately took the life of the, one of the leaders of the largest black gang in the city of Long Beach, the Insane Crips. And for two years, I tried to figure out that question of what could be done differently. What could I do different? What could he do different? Because there is an answer that can, that can help to quell these use of force issues that we're seeing out there. And so I didn't know the answer. I, my life really got turned upside down, struggled in relationships, struggled in sleeping. I mean, I had really bad thoughts myself, um, in and out of therapy, all different kinds of things. And then in December of 2011, um, I got two phone calls from two different confidential informants on two different sides of town. And they said, they call me tiny in Long Beach. <laughs> I don't know why I'm six foot four and I'm north of 300 pounds, but they call me tiny. I think I, I, think I can figure that one out. <laughs> and they say, the, the, two, the two informants said, hey, they're going to they're gonna ambush your gang team on Friday night and they're going to get you tiny. Um, they're going to ambush your directed enforcement team. Wow. And uh, it, was a, it was a game changer for me. And the little boy, over-aggressive police officer, all I wanted to do was go get active. And we tried to do parole searches and probation searches and all different kinds of stuff. Ultimately, we couldn't figure out who it was. And to give the answer to this piece right now, nobody was injured during this. But days before that threat, um, I walked into a high school classroom. And when I walked into a high school classroom, I spoke to a group of kids that the one of the um, employees in the school called the bad kids, the kids that struggle to sit in class, the kids that struggle to learn, put them all in the same room. And I started speaking to them in central Long Beach, hoping that somebody in that room would be able to get a message out that this tiny guy is actually human. So I spoke to this group. I don't know exactly how I got there. But at the end of about an hour of me speaking about why I point a gun at somebody, why I raise my voice, why they might have to crawl to me, why I drive fast, why I seem aggressive. While, after answering those questions, a kid in the back of the room raised his hand. 
And he stood, I'm sorry, he stood up without raising his hand. And he looked at me and he said, Tiny, do you remember me? Now, I didn't remember him. And he said, you arrested me with a gun in my waistband two years ago. Now, we were, we were you know, on an interesting team that got a lot of guns off of the street. So I still didn't remember. And he looked at me and in an aggressive way said, let me refresh your memory. He said, it was raining out that day. It was across the street from the school and I was holding my girl's hand. You pointed a gun at me and you made me crawl to you in the rain in front of my mom while my girl watched. He said, and, and excuse my language, but he says, you dropped your fat ass knee on my back and you handcuffed me. Somebody else swept me away. That was two years ago and I've never spoken to you since. He said, I want to tell you a couple things. Number one, you can't ever stop telling people why you do what you do. Now, Randy, I was blown away. I mean, a little bit of pee pee trickled down my leg. This was getting so intense, right? I was pretty scared. <laughs> I, was, I can this imagine. Was, this was incredible. Right. Now, this 17-year-old said, let me tell you a couple things about us and about me. He said, I was raised not to be disrespected in front of a woman. And yeah, I had a gun in my waistband, but I didn't want to let go of her hand. Me crawling in front of my mom made me feel horrible. Did you ever think about the fact that you crawling in front of your mom might make you feel really bad? Did you think that the gun wasn't for you? As a matter of fact, I would have never utilized the gun on any police officer. My brother was shot across the street just months prior, and I wanted to protect my mother. Wouldn't you protect your mother if that happened to you, Tiny? He said, what you just told me was you told me why you did what you did. But this is the first time anybody has ever told me that a police officer didn't just stop me because I was black. And I'll tell you, Randy, I was blown away. It was all about thinking for the other side. And I thought I was pretty good at that. But I realized then that something, something had to change. And so as I was trying to get my words out to say something to him, he looked at me and he said, don't stop. We need this. And I'm wow. not, and I'm not going to hurt you. you know, that, had, what, what an amazing experience for you. What an incredible you know, I, I, you know, every cop has a life-changing experience. Um, you know, actually, you know, more than one. Mm -hmm. And some of those experiences can be like the critical incident that you described, you know, just a couple minutes ago where you actually had to take the life of another human being. But to be given a gift like this can change the course of a person's life. And it sounds like that's exactly what happened to you. Yeah, I was so fortunate. I walked out, I, I looked at him and I didn't know what to say. And uh, he dismissed me from the room. He said, you can go now, Tiny. <laughs> so, so I walked out of that room and the assistant principal said, what's the name of your program? I said, I don't have a program. I just want to stay alive. He said, give me something for the website. And I had no clue how to name a program because I didn't know I had a program, Randy. And he said, give me something. I said, they always want to know why they got stopped. So call it, why'd you stop me? And that's where WISM came from. So that was December of 2011. And since then, we've been effectively able to engage with about 40,000 community members in 22 cities uh, providing community training. We have, uh, we're endorsed by the Long Beach Unified School District. We are endorsed by other school districts. 
We have built seventh and ninth grade programmings called Together Achieving Greatness um, to be able to show young leaders the importance of cooperating with authority systems in order to be the best leaders they can be. See, what we oftentimes don't realize is the best leaders have been impeccable followers and it takes power for the police officer and power for a community member to lead effectively and leading effectively is helping other people to reduce fear. That's what leading effectively is in any business. Leading effectively is helping other people to reduce fear. So that's what our program has had become. And then in, and we tra train community members from 2011 to 2016. And then the city of Salinas gave us a call and says, Hey, we got a grant um, from the Board of State and Community Corrections called Improving Police and Community Trust. Can you do it? He said, yeah, you got to give 70 trainings in Salinas and Monterey County. No problem. And you got to train cops, every cop in Salinas and every cop in Monterey County. And that's where I hit the stop button. Randy, I said, no, thank you. They said, excuse me. Yeah, um, I'm not going to be training cops. Cops are a pretty tough group to train. <laughs> <laughs> and, so uh, true. So and, true. And, and, and although cops are amazing human beings, and I'd say that there's well, way more than 99% of them out there doing the right thing, it's a group of leaders with egos who have a hard time sometimes training. And uh, they get through it, there, but it's just hard for me to want to do that. So they said, hey, we have this, this uh, grant and it's going to fund you doing it. So can you do it? I said, yeah, we'll give it a shot. So we trained every Salinas police officer, every Monterey County Sheriff's deputy. And the program is something now that has developed not only into community training, but it's developed into the only uh, effective procedural justice training completely funded by POST and the Department of Justice in California to be offered free to up to 70,000 police officers across the entire state. And we've now named that CP21. It is a empirically proven program called Community Policing in the 21st Century to Reduce Conflict, which provides officers with effective real life tools and tactical communication techniques that enhance officer safety and improve interactions between police and the public. And we are so honored to be able to train some of the best police officers in this great state of California. And our mission in training is to prove and to show the best leaders that the best can get better. And by us getting better, we become educational police officers and we take the reins. And then we, on a call by call basis, we are able to teach community members how we wanna be treated which ultimately makes the next contact safer. That's that's this is amazing stuff that you're talking about. Amazing stuff. I want to talk about you know you you brought it up. Training police officers is a very very difficult. Uh, it's a, it's a difficult program to do. Um, I, one of the jobs that I had with the Las Vegas Police Department was uh, supervisor of advanced training, and so for several years. That was my sole responsibility was to create training programs and, and bring in effective training programs. And especially when you're talking about mandated training, you have, you have a, an automatic um, wall put up between you and the men and women that you're facing in that room. How did you surmount that? So it doesn't matter whether we're teaching 13 year olds in eighth grade or we're teaching 55 year old 30 year veterans and police. If you answer somebody's why, you get them to understand why they're there. If you draw on their emotions, you create effective learning. 
And this learning that we are able to create is a system that makes sense because it teaches both sides. So when I walk into a police um, training, um, and we're training in small groups, we're having small group learning using multiple different adult learning theories. And as we do that, what we're saying is, if I can prove to you that this next eight hours will help you to improve your chances of going home every single day for the rest of your career, is it worth it to you? Not only that, but let's look and identify the type of police officer that you want responding to your son's home while you are in your city protecting other people's children. And what type of police officer do you want? And we ask police officers this and they say they want the best police officer. And then we speak to police officers who are very, very good at their job. And we say, is there an opportunity for you to get better? And they say, yes. Well, would you want that same opportunity for the police officer that responds to, to handle an issue with your son or daughter? And the, the obvious answer is yes. And so we're able to break down walls. We literally spend about 60 to 90 minutes building trust in the room before we talk about any of our course objectives. I mean, in, in our course, we have about nine course objectives. They all make sense. But number one is trust me and trust our training. Trust that we have a safe space to be able to speak about the turbulent times of 2020 without getting in trouble. And then from there, we'll move forward. So you, so you in essence, the, one of the most important topics that every cop believes in and is really interested in is in, quote, officer safety, unquote. And mm -hmm. so you incorporate that officer safety component um, initially in order to gain that, um, that interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, ha we actually have survey data. Um, we're, we, we, we take surveys at the end of our training um, and the surveys are in-depth. They're not rate your instructor one through five. The surveys ask a number of questions and 86% of the police officers we train will tell you that this is the best non-tactical officer safety course they've ever taken in their career. And that's a very, very big deal. Because what that says is, I know that I have a greater chance of going home if I implement this system. So that's really what it's, it's about in dealing with officer safety and kind of answering the officers why. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say that, that is a, that's, a, a, major, that's a, a major attention grabber there. So do you train, when you do this, are, you're trained officers separately from community members, is that correct? Yes, right now we provide officers with a eight hour course and we start off with that course, which is CP21. We then have a supervisory leadership course and that's for field training officers and above, I'm sorry, field training officers to lieutenants. Um, and then after that, we have a train the trainer program and that train the trainer program allows police officers from other agencies to work with us for a three day period. It's an intensive three day, 27 hour training course that allows police officers to start to build on the skill set it takes to provide community training called Together Achieving Greatness in their area without us. They now become the why'd you stop me in their city, in their county, in, in their community, all the way up to 10 one-hour sessions. And those 10 one-hour sessions are very, very important because that, that allows a um, school semester of learning at the seventh or ninth grade classroom. 
So that seventh or ninth grade classroom is where we're able to really thrive. So they go in there and they do that. But these officers are not only able to take it to the classroom, they're able to go into reentry programs, into jails and prisons, into parenting style programs and bring some of these ideas. So it's able to kind of be this program in a box that allows police officers to do this without us. How do you get engaged with the community? Because this is essentially um, a, a community-based. You're, you're trying to train people why, in, in why do you stop me? You're trying to train community members into, you know, w- giving the, the reasoning so that there's a greater understanding and hopefully more cooperation. How do you get people in the community engaged and interested in, in receiving this, this training? Yeah, it's all about incentivizing learning and incentivized learning has become bigger and bigger now. And if you think about it, in the first grade, you and I didn't get many uh, awards or medals, but now everyone gets a medal. No matter what you've done, if you go to school every single day, you get a perfect attendance medal. That's the size of the first place medal that we used to get. (laughs) So incentivized learning is really important. What we want to do is prove to the community that police officers are out there seeking to better understand them. And in order for them to do that, we have to be able to have ongoing dialogue. So what we tell the community is, hey, here is what we're teaching the police. What we tell the police is, hey, here is what we're teaching the community. Because right now, we are at a position where community members want the police trained and police officers want the community trained. And both, have, um, are, both are correct to an extent. So what we want to do is we want to be able to show that um, there are things that police officers are learning, but they cannot do what they need to do if you don't know the importance and the ability to properly cooperate with the police. Does that make sense? So in, in other words, you know, we all know that there is a, quote, social contract, unquote, that people that, that you know, the 800,000 cops that are in this country um, simply cannot control 340 million people simply by being cops. They have to have the cooperation of the community. I mean, Sir Robert Peel, when he, when he first brought modern policing uh, to the civilized world, was the people are the police and the police are the people. So in essence, that's what you're saying. But how do you actually, how do you actually engage the community and say, we want you to understand our point of view and we want you to take this training how do you get it actually out into the street so where where we go with this is a place that a lot of police agencies are not going where we go is we go into school classrooms and in school classrooms the youth are there to learn and we're here to prove that if they learn this they will be safer when they encounter the police parents want that Community members want that. Community leaders want that. When we go into a jail or a, um, a reentry program, we're teaching people how to cooperate so that they don't have a, um, a poor encounter with the police, which then leads to something that didn't have to occur. So the buy-in is how do I get along with a police officer to get through this contact safely? Because we have to have this thought-stimulating discussion. We have to look at personal perspectives. We have to honor the person that, that exists there um, in front of us. 
what we want to do is we want to see color. We want to see culture, but we want to see the human being behind whatever uniform exists. We need to start doing a better job of not only challenging the status quo, but learning how to change effectively so that the outcome is different. And we do that through a reduction in fear. And a reduction in fear helps people become better leaders. I'll tell you, when we walk into a seventh and ninth grade classroom, outside of incentivizing the program by providing, you know, raffle items and, and gifts and things like that, which are important nowadays, we tell the young people two things that really seem to spark their interest. Number one, when we leave this room, you're going to have an opportunity to make more money and get rich. And number two, we're going to find you a better looking girlfriend. And for some reason, that sparks the interest. And I don't know if those two things are exact per se, but what we're ultimately saying is... Can I sign up for that? <laughs> but what, what we're ultimately saying is that we want to show the value in cooperation. And it's almost the same thing when it comes to police training. It's just shaped a little bit different. You know, I think this is absolutely fascinating. And, and you know, it's... Well, you're talking about a, a huge difference in your life, I mean, from being a street cop uh, and, and uh, you know, getting in the mix all the time to, you know, literally be, being a, a professional trainer. I mean, it's a, it's a huge career change for you. Yeah, I'll tell you, Steve James is a person whose name I throw out a lot. And he came to me one day and said, are you done being a street cop? And I said, excuse me? He said, uh, you need to leave your directed enforcement team. You need to get into community engagement. You need to grow this program. And before I knew it, our program is the only 21st century training program nationally endorsed by the Fraternal Order of Police, representing 380,000 police officers. And we are also a program endorsed by the NAACP. And so to have those endorsements is huge. And to be able to say that we sit in the middle with this is incredible. I have the honor of still feeling like a policeman every once in a while because I get to supervise some great cops on a field team. And I work 40 hours a week um, in the city of Long Beach as a supervisor in, in the exact same area that I had all of my issue, almost all of my issues in, in the exact same area where I was working on the gang and violent crime suppression team. And, and it's truly an honor. But this does take me away uh, from that traditional policing role every once in a while. And I do believe that it's, a, it's my calling, and I'm very honored to be able to do it. Amazing stuff. Absolutely amazing. So um, how do you have a website? Yeah, we have a website, but I'll tell you what's interesting. What's interesting is we have more people visiting our social media than our website now. Really? And so I'm going to start off by providing our social media because for some reason that seems to be what's drawing people in. And the social media is Team Wisdom. So it's T-E-A-M-W-Y-S-M, just like Why'd You Stop Me? And that's on Instagram and on Facebook. And our uh, website is www.wysm or wisdom.org. On top of that, I also have a public figure page as a police officer where I specifically work to humanize the badge through social media. And that page is Jason Lehman 64. So it's Jason L E H M A N 64. If anybody needs anything or has any questions, uh, emailing us is perfect at info at wisdom.org. I think that you're probably going to get a whole bunch of, of, uh, contacts from this show. And, uh, I, 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 have I have a great deal of respect for what you're doing, Jason. 
Uh, you're really making a difference. And let's talk again at a, at a later time because uh, I think the, the message that you're putting out is absolutely essential for this country and for our police. Thanks so much. One of the most important things that you can do as either a, a law enforcement officer, or someone who supports law enforcement, is to help injured and disabled officers. How? By simply going to this website, www.thewoundedblue.org. Thewoundedblue.org. And why should you do that? Well, first of all, because I founded the organization. Do you need any more than that, really? So this organization provides tremendous assistance and support to officers who've been injured either physically or emotionally in the line of duty. Uh, we have a phenomenal um, documentary film. If you go to Amazon.com and look at uh, The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. Also on uh, YouTube, if you go to our YouTube channel, Wounded Blue TV, check out our series, The Voices of the Blue. You want to do everything you can to help these men and women who sacrificed so much for their communities. Go to www.thewoundedblue.org. End of Watch with Randy Sutton. Each week here on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, we pay our respects to the men and women of the profession who have made the ultimate sacrifice and given their lives in the line of duty. We call it end of watch. So far this year, more than 200 American law enforcement officers have made that ultimate sacrifice, and unfortunately I have more names to read this week. The first is Sergeant Ethan Kaskin of the Anderson Police Department in South Carolina. Sergeant Ethan Kaskin was killed when his department vehicle was struck head-on on the Highway 24 bridge in Anderson County at 6.30 a.m. An oncoming vehicle crossed the center line and struck his vehicle head-on, causing him to suffer fatal injuries. Sergeant Kaskin has served with the Anderson Police for 12 years, was assigned to the investigations unit. He is survived by his wife, children, and grandchildren. Sergeant Ethan Franklin, Anderson Police Department, South Carolina, end of watch, Friday, September 25th, 2020. The next is Deputy Sheriff Kenny Ingram, and Deputy Sheriff Anthony White, both of the Fulton County Sheriff's Office in Georgia. Deputy Sheriff Kenny Ingram and Deputy Sheriff Anthony White were killed in a vehicle crash on I-20 in Columbia County. They were en route to Augusta, Georgia to pick up an inmate to be returned to Fulton County. Their department vehicle struck the back of a tractor trailer that had stopped in traffic. Both uh, officers had served with the Fulton County Sheriff's Office for 15 years. End of watch, Tuesday, September 29th, 2020. The next is Deputy Sheriff Christopher Smith of the McLennan County Sheriff's Office in Texas. Deputy Sheriff Chris Smith died after contracting COVID-19 during confirmed exposure at the McLennan County Tax Office, 215 North 5th Street in Waco. Deputy Smith was a U.S. Air Force veteran has served with the McLennan County Sheriff's Office for 30 years. He is survived by his wife and child. Deputy Sheriff Christopher Smith, McLennan County Sheriff's Office in Texas. End of watch Monday, September 21st, 2020. And the next is Master Jail Officer Robert Charles Sanukjian 
of the Hampton Roads Regional Jail in Virginia. Master Jail Officer Robert Sanukian died after contracting COVID-19 during an outbreak among staff and inmates at the Hampton Roads Regional Jail. He has served with the Hampton Roads Regional Jail for 16 years. He is survived by his wife and parents. Master Jail Officer Robert Charles Sanukian, Hampton Roads Regional Jail, Virginia, end of watch Thursday, September 24th, 2020. Each one of these officers gave their lives in the line of duty serving their communities and their country. May they rest in peace. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, here on the America Out Loud Network with your host, Randy Sutton. A couple things. If you want to contact me, go to Facebook, the voice of American law enforcement. On Twitter, I'm at LT Randy Sutton. I look forward to hearing from you. And remember to support the men and women of the law enforcement profession by going to www.thewoundedblue.org and help any way you can. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.